Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 1. A Letter with a Postscript A gentleman called to see you when you were out last night, sir said Mrs. Medley, my landlady, removing the last of the breakfast things. "'Yes,' I said, in my affable way. "'A gentleman,' said Mrs. Medley, meditatively, "'with a very powerful voice.' "'Caruso?' "'Sir?' I said, "'Did he leave a name?' "'Yes, sir, Mr. Eukridge.' "'Oh, my sainted aunt!' "'Sir?' "'Nothing, nothing.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Mrs. Medley, withdrawing from the presence. "'Eukridge! Oh, hang it! I had not met him for years, and, glad as I am as a general thing to see the friends of my youth when they drop in for a chat, I doubted whether I was quite equal to Eukridge at the moment. A stout fellow, in both the physical and moral sense of the words, he was a trifle too jumpy for a man of my cloistered and intellectual life, especially as just now I was trying to plan out a new novel, a tricky job demanding complete quiet and seclusion. It had always been my experience that when Eukridge was around things began to happen swiftly and violently, rendering meditation impossible. Eukridge was the sort of man who asks you out to dinner borrows the money from you to pay the bill, and winds up the evening by embroiling you in a fight with a cabman. I have gone to Covent Garden balls with Eukridge, and found myself legging it down Henrietta Street in the grey dawn, pursued by infuriated costermongers. I wondered how he got my address, and on that problem light was immediately cast by Mrs. Medley, who returned bearing an envelope. It came by the morning post, sir, but it was left at number twenty by mistake. Oh, thank you. Thank you, sir, said Mrs. Medley. I recognized the handwriting. The letter, which bore a Devonshire postmark, was from an artist friend of mine, one Lickford, who was at present on a sketching tour in the West. I had seen him off at Waterloo a week before, and I remember that I had walked away from the station wishing that I could summon up the energy to pack and get off to the country somewhere. I hate London in July. The letter was a long one, but it was the postscript which interested me most. By the way, at Yeovil I ran into an old friend of ours, Stanley Fansaw Eukridge, of all people. As large as life, quite six foot two and tremendously filled out. 
I thought he was abroad. The last I heard of him was that he had started for Buenos Aires in a cattle ship with a borrowed pipe by way of luggage. It seems he has been in England for some time. I met him in the refreshment room at Yeovil Station. I was waiting for a down train. He had changed on his way to town. As I opened the door, I heard a huge voice entreating the lady behind the bar to put it in a pewter, and there was S.F.U. in a villainous old suit of grey flannels. I'll swear it was the one he had on the last time I saw him, with pince-nez tacked on to his ears with ginger-beer wire as usual, and a couple of inches of bare neck showing between the bottom of his collar and the top of his coat. You remember how he could never get a stud to do its work. He also wore a Macintosh, though it was a blazing day. He greeted me with effusive shouts. Wouldn't hear of my standing in the racket. Insisted on being host. When we had finished, he fumbled in his pockets, looked pained and surprised, and drew me aside. "'Look here, licky old horse,' he said. "'You know I never borrow money. It's against my principles. But I must have a couple of bob. Can you, my dear good fellow, oblige me with a couple of bob till next Tuesday?' I'll tell you what I'll do, in a voice full of emotion. I'll let you have this, producing a beastly little threepenny bit with a hole in it, which he had probably picked up in the street, until I can pay you back. This is of more value to me than I can express, Licky, my boy. A very, very dear friend gave it to me when we parted, years ago. It's a wrench. Still, no, no, you must take it. You must take it. Licky old man, shake hands, old horse. Shake hands, my boy. He then tottered to the bar, deeply moved, and paid up out of the five shillings which he had made it as an afterthought. He asked after you, and said you were one of the noblest men on earth. I gave him your address, not being able to get out of it but if I were you, I should fly while there is yet time." It seemed to me that the advice was good, and should be followed. I needed a change of air. London may have suited Dr. Johnson, but in the summer-time it is not for the ordinary man. What I wanted, to enable me to give the public of my best, as the reviewer of a weekly paper, dealing with my last work, had expressed a polite hope that I would continue to do, was a little haven in the country somewhere. I rang the bell. "'Sir,' said Mrs. Medley. "'I'm going away for a bit,' I said. "'Yes, sir.' "'I don't know where. I'll send you the address so that you can forward letters.' "'Yes, sir.' "'And if Mr. Eukridge calls again—' At this point a thunderous knocking on the front door interrupted me. Something seemed to tell me who was at the end of that knocker. I heard Mrs. Medley's footsteps pass along the hall. There was the click of the latch. A volume of sound rushed up the stairs. "'Is Garnet in? Where is he? Show me the old horse. Where is the man of wrath? Exhibit the son of Belial!' There followed a violent crashing on the stairs, shaking the house. "'Garnet! Where are you, laddie? Garnet! Garnet!' Stanley Fanshaw Eukridge was in my midst. 
End of chapter 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 2 Mr. and Mrs. S. F. Eugridge. I have often thought that Who's Who, though a bulky and well-meaning volume, omits too many of England's greatest men. It is not comprehensive enough. I am in it, nestling among the G's. Garnet, Jeremy, O.S. of late Henry Garnet, Vicar of Much Middlefold, Salop. Author. Publications. The Outsider. The Maneuvers of Arthur. Hobbies. Cricket, football, swimming, golf. Clubs. Arts. But if you search among the U's for Eucharidge, Stanley Fanshaw, details of whose tempestuous career would make really interesting reading, you find no mention of him. It seems unfair, though I imagine Eucharidge bears it with fortitude. That much-enduring man has had a lifetime's training in bearing things with fortitude. He seemed in his customary jovial spirits now, as he dashed into the room, clinging on to the pince-nez, which even ginger-beer wire rarely kept stable for two minutes together. "'My dear old man!' he shouted, springing at me and seizing my hand in the grip like the bite of a horse. "'How are you, old buck? This is good. By Jove, this is fine. What?' He dashed to the door and looked out. "'Come on, Millie. Pick up the walk-keases. Here's old Garnet, looking just the same as ever. Devilish handsome fellow. You'll be glad you came in when you see him. Beats the zoo hollow.' There appeared round the corner of Eucridge a young woman. She paused in the doorway and smiled pleasantly. "'Garney, old horse,' said Eucridge with some pride, "'this is her. The pride of the home.' "'Companion of joys and sorrows and all the rest of it. "'In fact,' in a burst of confidence, "'my wife.' "'I bowed awkwardly. "'The idea of Eugridge married was something too overpowering "'to be readily assimilated. "'Buck up, old horse,' said Eugridge encouragingly. "'He had a painful habit of addressing all and sundry by that title. "'In his schoolmaster days,' At one period of his vivid career, he and I had been colleagues on the staff of a private school. He had made use of it interviewing the parents of new pupils, and the latter had gone away, as a rule, with a feeling that this must either be the easy manner of genius or due to alcohol, and hoping for the best. He also used it to perfect strangers in the streets, and on one occasion had been heard to address a bishop by that title rendering that dignitary, as Mr. Babu Jabberjee would put it, sotto voce, with gratification. "'Surprised to find me married, what? Garney, old boy!' sinking his voice to a whisper almost inaudible on the other side of the street. 
Take my tip. Go and jump off the dock yourself. You'll feel another man. Give up this bachelor business. It's a mug's game. I look on you bachelors as excrescences on the social system. I regard you, old man, purely and simply as a wart. Go and get married, laddie. Go and get married. By gad, I've forgotten to pay the cabbie. Lend me a couple of Bob Garney, old chap. He was out of the door and on his way downstairs, before the echoes of his last remark had ceased to shake the window. I was left to entertain Mrs. Eukridge. So far, her share in the conversation had been confined to the pleasant smile which was apparently her chief form of expression. Nobody talked very much when Eukridge was present. She sat on the edge of the armchair, looking very small and quiet. I was conscious of feeling a benevolent pity for her. If I had been a girl, I would have preferred to marry a volcano. A little of Eukridge, as his former headmaster had once said in a moody, reflective voice, went a very long way. "'You and Stanley have known each other a long time, haven't you?' said the object of my commiseration, breaking the silence. "'Yes, oh yes, several years. We were masters at the same school.' Mrs. Eukridge leaned forward with round, shining eyes. "'Really? Oh, how nice!' she said ecstatically. Not yet, to judge from her expression and the tone of her voice, had she found any disadvantages attached to the arduous position of being Mrs. Stanley Eukridge. "'He's a wonderfully versatile man,' I said. "'I believe he could do anything.' "'He'd have a jolly good try.' "'Have you ever kept fowls?' asked Mrs. Eukridge, with apparent irrelevance. I had not. She looked disappointed. I was hoping you might have had some experience. Stanley, of course, can turn his hand to anything, but I think experience is rather a good thing, don't you? Yes, but— I have bought a shilling book called Fowls and All About Them, and this week's copy of C.A.C. C.A.C.? Chiefly about chickens. It's a paper, you know. But it's all rather hard to understand. You see, we—but here is Stanley. He will explain the whole thing. "'Well, Garney, old horse,' said Eukridge, re-entering the room after another energetic passage of the stairs. "'Years since I saw you. Still buzzing along?' "'Still, so to speak, buzzing,' I assented. "'I was reading your last book the other day.' "'Yes,' I said, gratified. "'How did you like it?' "'Well, as a matter of fact, laddie, I didn't get beyond the third page, because the scurvy knave at the bookstall said he wasn't running a free library, and in one way and another there was a certain amount of unpleasantness. Still, it seemed bright and interesting up to page three. "'But let's settle down and talk business.' I've got a scheme for you, Garney, old man. Yes, sir, the idea of a thousand years. Now, listen to me for a moment. Let me get a word in edgeways. He sat down on the table and dragged up a chair as a leg rest. Then he took off his pince-nez, wiped them, readjusted the ginger-beer wire behind his ears, 
and, having hit a brown patch on the knee of his grey flannel trousers several times, in the apparent hope of removing it, resumed. About fowls. The subject was beginning to interest me. It showed a curious tendency to creep into the conversation of the Eucridge family. I want you to give me your undivided attention for a moment. I was saying to my wife as we came here, Garnet's the man. Clever devil, Garnet. Full of ideas. Didn't I, Milly? Yes, dear. Laddie, said Eucridge impressively, we are going to keep fowls. He shifted himself farther onto the table and upset the ink-pot. "'Never mind,' he said. "'It'll soak in. It's good for the texture. Or am I thinking of tobacco-ash on the carpet? Well, never mind. Listen to me. When I said that we were going to keep fowls, I didn't mean in a small, piffling sort of way, two cocks and a couple of hens and a golf-ball for a nest-egg. We are going to do it on a large scale. We are going to run a chicken-farm.' "'A chicken farm,' echoed Mrs. Eucridge, with an affectionate and admiring glance at her husband. "'Ah,' I said, feeling my responsibilities as chorus, "'a chicken farm.' "'I've thought it all over, laddie, and it's clear as mud. No expenses, large profits, quick returns. Chickens, eggs, and the money streaming in faster than you can bank it.' winter and summer underclothing, my bonny boy, lined with crackling Bradberries. It's the idea of a lifetime. Now listen to me for a moment. You get your hen. One hen? Call it one for the sake of argument. It makes my calculations clearer. Very well, then. Harriet the hen. You get her. Do you follow me so far? Yes, you get a hen. I told you Garnet was a dashed bright fellow said Eucridge approvingly to his attentive wife. Notice the way he keeps right after one's ideas, like a bloodhound. Well, where was I? You'd just got a hen. Exactly. The hen. Priscilla the pullet. Well, it lays an egg every day of the week. You sell the eggs, six for half a crown. Keep of hen costs nothing. Profit, at least a couple of bob on every dozen eggs. What do you think of that? I think I'd like to overhaul the figures in case of error. Error! shouted Eugridge, pounding the table till it groaned. Error! Not a bit of it! Can't you follow a simple calculation like that? Oh, I forgot to say that you get, and here is the nub of the thing, you get your first hen on tick. Anybody will be glad to let you have the hen on tick. Well, then you get this hen, this first original hen, this on-tick hen, you let it set and hatch chickens. Now, follow me closely. Suppose you have a dozen hens. Very well, then. When each of the dozen has a dozen chickens, you send the old hens back to the chappies you borrowed them from, with thanks for the kind loan, and there you are, starting business with a hundred and forty-four free chickens to your name. And after that... When the chickens grow up and begin to lay, all you have to do is sit back in your chair and endorse the big checks. Isn't that so, Millie? Yes, dear. We've fixed it all up. Do you know Combe Regis in Dorsetshire? On the borders of Devon. Bathing, sea air, splendid scenery. 
just the place for a chicken farm. A friend of Millie's, girl she knew at school, has lent us a topping old house, with large grounds. All we've got to do is get in the fowls. I've ordered the first lot. We shall find them waiting for us when we arrive. Well, I said, I'm sure I wish you luck. Mind you let me know how you get on. Let you know, roared Eucridge. Why, my dear old horse, you're coming with us. Am I? I said blankly. Certainly you are. We shall take no refusal. Will we, Milly? No, dear. Of course not. No refusal of any sort. Back up tonight and meet us at Waterloo tomorrow. It's awfully good of you. Not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. This is pure business. I was saying to Milly as we came along that you were the very man for this. A man with your flow of ideas will be invaluable on a chicken farm. Absolutely invaluable. You see, proceeded Eucridge, I'm one of those practical fellows, the hard-headed type. I go straight ahead, following my nose. What you want in a business of this sort is a touch of the dreamer to help out the practical mind. We look to you for suggestions, laddie. Flashes of inspiration and all that sort of thing. Of course, you take your share of the profits. That's understood. Yes, yes, I must insist. Strict business between friends. Now, taking it that, at a conservative estimate, the net profits for the first fiscal year amount to five thousand. No, better be on the safe side. Say four thousand five hundred pounds. But we'll arrange all that end of it when we get down there. Millie will look after that. She's the secretary of the concern. She's been writing letters to people asking for hens. So you see it's a thoroughly organized business. How many hen letters did you write last week, old girl? Ten, dear. Eucridge turned triumphantly to me. You hear? Ten! Ten letters asking for hens. That's the way to succeed. Push and enterprise. Six of them haven't answered, Stanley, dear, and the rest refused. "'Immaterial,' said Eucridge, with a grand gesture. "'That doesn't matter. The point is that the letters were written. It shows we are solid and practical. Well, now, can you get your things ready by tomorrow, Garney, old horse?' Strange how one reaches an epic-making moment in one's life without recognizing it. If I had refused that invitation, I would not have— at any rate, I would have missed a remarkable experience. It is not given to everyone to see Stanley Fansaw Eucridge manage a chicken farm. "'I was thinking of going somewhere where I could get some golf,' I said undecidedly. "'Combe Regis is just the place for you, then. Perfect hotbed of golf, full of the finest players. Can't throw a brick without hitting an amateur champion.' Grand links at the top of the hill, not half a mile from the farm. Bring your clubs. You'll be able to play in the afternoons. Get through serious work by lunchtime. You know, I said, I am absolutely inexperienced as regards fowls. I just know enough to help myself to bread sauce when I see one, but no more. Excellent. You're just the man. You will bring to the work a mind unclouded by theories. You will act solely by the light of your intelligence, and you've got lots of that. That novel of yours showed the most extraordinary intelligence. 
at least as far as the blighter at the bookstall would let me read. I wouldn't have a professional chicken farmer about the place if he paid to come. If he applied to me, I should simply send him away. Natural intelligence is what we want. Then we can rely on you. Very well, I said slowly. It's very kind of you to ask me. Business, laddie, pure business. Very well, then. We shall catch the 1120 at Waterloo. Don't miss it. Look out for me on the platform. If I see you first, I'll shout. End of chapter 2「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 3 Waterloo Station, Some Fellow Travelers, and a Girl with Brown Hair. The austerity of Waterloo Station was lightened on the following morning at ten minutes to eleven, when I arrived to catch the train to Combe Regis, by several gleams of sunshine and a great deal of bustle and activity on the various platforms. A porter took my suitcase and golf clubs and arranged an assignation on number six platform. I bought my ticket and made my way to the bookstall, where, in the interests of trade, I inquired in a loud and penetrating voice if they had got Jeremy Garnett's Maneuvers of Arthur. Being informed that they had not, I clicked my tongue reproachfully, advised them to order in a supply, as the demand was likely to be large, and spent a couple of shillings on a magazine and some weekly papers. Then, with ten minutes to spare, I went off in search of Eukridge. I found him on Platform 6. The 1120 was already alongside, and presently I observed my porter cleaving a path towards me with a suitcase and golf-bag. "'Here you are!' shouted Eukridge vigorously. "'Good for you! Thought you were going to miss it!' I shook hands with the smiling Mrs. Eukridge. "'I've got a carriage and collared two corner seats. Millie goes down in another. She doesn't like the smell of smoke when she's travelling. Hope we get the carriage to ourselves.' "'Devil of a lot of people here this morning. "'Still, the more people there are in the world, "'the more eggs we shall sell. "'I can see with half an eye "'that all these blighters are confirmed egg-eaters. "'Get in, Sonny. "'I'll just see the missus into her carriage "'and come back to you.' "'I entered the compartment and stood at the door, "'looking out in the faint hope "'of thwarting an invasion of fellow travellers. Then I withdrew my head suddenly and sat down. An elderly gentleman, accompanied by a pretty girl, was coming towards me. It was not this type of fellow-traveller whom I'd hoped to keep out. I had noticed the girl at the booking-office. She had waited by the side of the queue while the elderly gentleman struggled gamely for the tickets, and I had had plenty of opportunity of observing her appearance. I had debated with myself whether her hair should rightly be described as brown or golden. I had finally decided on brown. Once only had I met her eyes, and then only for an instant. 
they might be blue. They might be gray, I could not be certain. Life is full of these problems. "'This seems to be tolerably empty, my dear Phyllis,' said the elderly gentleman, coming to the door of the compartment and looking in. "'You're sure you don't object to a smoking carriage?' "'Oh, no, father, not a bit.' "'Then I think,' said the elderly gentleman, getting in. The inflection of his voice suggested the Irishman. It was not a brogue. There were no strange words, but the general effect was Irish. "'That's good.' he said, settling himself and pulling out a cigar-case. The bustle of the platform had increased momentarily, until now, when, from the snorting of the engine, it seemed likely that the train might start at any minute. The crowd's excitement was extreme. Shrill cries echoed down the platform. Lost sheep, singly and in companies, rushed to and fro, peering eagerly into carriages in search of seats. Piercing voices ordered unknown Tommies and Ernies to keep by ante now. Just as Eukridge returned, that suave quepieux of the railway crowd, the dreaded get-in-anywhere, began to be heard, and the next moment an avalanche of warm humanity poured into the carriage. The newcomers consisted of a middle-aged lady, addressed as Auntie, very stout and clad in grey alpaca dress, skin-tight, a youth called Albert, not, it was to appear, a sunny child, a niece of some twenty years, stolid and seemingly without interest in life, and one or two other camp-followers and retainers. Eukridge slipped into his corner, adroitly foiling Albert, who had made a dive in that direction. Albert regarded him fixedly and reproachfully for a space, then sank into the seat beside me and began to chew something that smelt of aniseed. Auntie, meanwhile, was distributing her substantial weight evenly between the feet of the Irish gentleman and those of his daughter, as she leaned out of the window to converse with a lady friend in a straw hat and hair curlers, accompanied by three dirty and frivolous boys. It was, she stated, lucky that she had caught the train. I could not agree with her. The girl with the brown hair, and the eyes that were neither blue or grey, was bearing the infliction, I noticed, with angelic calm. She even smiled. This was when the train suddenly moved off with a jerk, and Auntie, staggering back, sat down on the bag of food which Albert had placed on the seat beside him. "'Clumsy,' observed Albert tersely. "'Albert, you mustn't speak to Auntie so.' "'Wadger want to send in my bag for, then?' said Albert, disagreeably. They argued the point. Argument in no wise interfered with Albert's power of mastication. The odor of aniseed became more and more painful. Eukridge had lighted a cigar, and I understood why Mrs. Eukridge preferred to travel in another compartment, for in his hand he bore the brand which none but he might smoke. I looked across the carriage stealthily to see how the girl was enduring this combination of evils, and noticed that she had begun to read. And, as she put the book down to look out of the window, I saw with a thrill that trickled like warm water down my spine that her book was The Maneuvers of Arthur. I gasped. That a girl should look so pretty as that, and at the same time have the 
rare intelligence to read me. Well, it seemed an almost superhuman combination of the excellencies. And more devoutly than ever I cursed in my heart these intrusive outsiders who had charged in at the last moment and destroyed forever my chance of making this wonderful girl's acquaintance. But for them we might have become intimate in the first half-hour. As it was, what were we? Ships that pass in the night. She would get out at some beastly wayside station and vanish from my life without my ever having even spoken to her. Auntie, meanwhile, having retired badly worsted from her encounter with Albert, who showed a skill in legomachy that marked him out as a future labor member, was consoling herself with meat sandwiches. The niece was demolishing sausage rolls. The atmosphere of the carriage was charged with a blend of odors, topping all Eucridge's cigar, now in full blast. The train raced on towards the sea. It was a warm day, and a torpid peace began to settle down upon the carriage. Eucridge had thrown away the stump of his cigar, and was now leaning back with his mouth open and his eyes shut. Auntie, still clutching a much-bitten section of a beef sandwich, was breathing heavily and swaying from side to side. Albert and the niece were dozing, Albert's jaws working automatically, even in sleep. "'What's your book, my dear?' asked the Irishman. "'The Maneuvers of Arthur, father, by Jeremy Garnett.' I would not have believed, without the evidence of my ears, that my name could possibly have sounded so musical. Molly McEachern gave it to me when I left the Abbey. She keeps a shelf of books for her guests when they are going away. Books that she considers rubbish and doesn't want, you know. I hated Miss McEachern without further evidence. And what do you think of it? I like it, said the girl decidedly. The carriage swam before my eyes. I think it is very clever. What did it matter after that that the ass in charge of the Waterloo bookstore had never heard of the maneuvers of Arthur, and that my publishers, whenever I slunk in to ask how it was selling, looked at me with a sort of grave paternal pity, and said that it had not really begun to move? Anybody can write one of those rotten popular novels which appeal to the unthinking public, but it takes a man of intellect and refinement and taste and all that sort of thing to turn out something that will be approved of by a girl like this. "'I wonder who Jeremy Garnet is,' she said. "'I've never heard of him before. I imagine him rather an old young man, probably with an eyeglass and conceited. And I should think he didn't know many girls. At least if he thinks Pamela is an ordinary sort of girl. She's a creature.' said Phyllis emphatically. This was a blow to me. I had always looked on Pamela as a well-drawn character, and a very attractive, kittenish little thing at that. That scene between her and the curate in the conservatory, and when she talks to Arthur at the meet of the Blankshires, I was sorry she did not like Pamela. Somehow it lowered Pamela in my estimation. "'But I like Arthur,' said the girl. "'This was better. A good chap, Arthur. A very complete and thoughtful study of myself. If she liked Arthur, why, then it followed. But what was the use? 
I should never get a chance of speaking to her. We were divided by a great gulf of Antes and Alberts and meat sandwiches. The train was beginning to slow down. Signs of returning animation began to be noticeable among the sleepers. Auntie's eyes opened, stared vacantly round, closed, and reopened. The niece woke, and started instantly to attack a sausage roll. Albert and Eukridge slumbered on. A whistle from the engine, and the train drew up at a station. Looking out, I saw that it was Yeovil. There was a general exodus. Auntie became instantly a thing of dash and electricity, collected parcels, shook Albert, replied to his thrusts with repartee, and finally heading a stampede out of the door. The Irishman and his daughter also rose and got out. I watched them leave stoically. It would have been too much to expect that they would be going any further. "'Where are we?' said Eukridge sleepily. "'Yeovil? Not far now. I'll tell you what it is, old horse. I could do with a drink.' With that remark he closed his eyes again and returned to his slumbers. And, as he did so, my eye, roving discontentedly over the carriage, was caught by something lying in the far corner. It was the maneuvers of Arthur. The girl had left it behind. I suppose what follows shows the vanity that obsesses young authors. It did not even present itself to me as a tenable theory that the book might have been left behind on purpose, as being of no further use to the owner. It only occurred to me that, if I did not act swiftly, the poor girl would suffer a loss beside which the loss of a purse or vanity case were trivial. Five seconds later I was on the platform. "'Excuse me,' I said. "'I think—' "'Oh, thank you so much,' said the girl. I made my way back to the carriage and lit my pipe in a glow of emotion. "'They are blue,' I said to my immortal soul. "'A wonderful, deep, soft, heavenly blue, like the sea at noonday. End of chapter 3《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《
Eukridge led us in the direction of the farm, which lay across the valley, looking through the woods to the sea. The place was visible from the station, from which, indeed, standing as it did on the top of a hill, the view was extensive. Halfway up the slope on the other side of the valley, we left the road and made our way across a spongy field, Eukridge explaining that this was a shortcut. We climbed through a hedge, crossed a stream, and another field, and after negotiating a difficult bank, topped with barbed wire, found ourselves in a garden. Eukridge mopped his forehead, and restored his pince-nez to their original position from which the passage of the barbed wire had dislodged them. "'This is the place,' he said. "'We've come in by the back way. Saves time. Tired, Millie?' "'A little, dear. I should like some tea.' "'Same here,' I agreed. "'That'll be all right,' said Eukridge. "'A most competent man of the name of Beale and his wife are in charge at present. I wrote to them telling them that we were coming today. They will be ready for us. That's the way to do things, Garney, old horse. Quiet efficiency. Perfect organization.' We were at the front door by this time. Eukridge rang the bell. The noise echoed through the house, but there was no answering footsteps. He rang again. There is no mistaking the note of a bell in an empty house. It was plain that the competent man and his wife were out. "'Now what?' I said. Mrs. Eukridge looked at her husband with calm confidence. "'This,' said Eukridge, leaning against the door and endeavouring to unbutton his collar at the back, "'reminds me of an afternoon in the Argentine. Two other cheery sportsmen and myself tried for three-quarters of an hour to get into an empty house, where there looked as if there might be something to drink, and we just got the door open when the owner turned up from behind a tree with a shotgun. It was a little difficult to explain. As a matter of fact, we never did what you might call really thresh the matter out thoroughly in all its aspects, and you'd be surprised what a devil of a time it takes to pick buckshot out of a fellow. There was a dog, too. He broke off, musing dreamily on the happy past, and at this moment history partially repeated itself. From the other side of the door came a dissatisfied whine, followed by a short bark. "'Hullo,' said Eukridge. "'Beale has a dog.' He frowned, annoyed. "'What right?' he added, in an aggrieved tone. "'Has a beastly mongrel belonging to a man I employ to keep me out of my own house?' It's a little hard. Here am I, slaving day and night to support Beale, and when I try to get into my own house his infernal dog barks at me. Upon my Sam it's hard." He brooded for a moment on the injustice of things. "'Here, let me get to the keyhole. I'll reason with the brute.' He put his mouth to the keyhole and roared, "'Good dog!' through it. Instantly the door shook as some heavy object hurled itself against it. The barking rang through the house. "'Come round to the back,' said Eukridge, giving up the idea of conciliation. "'We'll get in through the kitchen window.' The kitchen window proved to be insecurely latched. Eukridge threw it open and we climbed in. The dog, hearing the noise, raced back along the passage and flung himself at the door, scratching at the panels. 
Eucridge listened with growing indignation. "'Milly, you know how to light a fire. Garnet and I will be collecting cups and things. When that scoundrel Beale arrives I shall tear him limb from limb. Deserting us like this. The man must be a thorough fraud. He told me he was an old soldier. If that's the sort of discipline they used to keep in his regiment, thank God we've got a navy. Damn, I've broken a plate. How's the fire getting on, Milly? I'll chop Beale into little bits. What's that you've got there, Garney old horse? Tea? Good. Where's the bread? There goes another plate. Where's Mrs. Beale, too? By Jove, that woman wants killing as much as her blackguard of a husband. Who ever heard of a cook deliberately leaving her post on the day when her master and mistress were expected back? The abandoned woman. Look, I'll give that dog three minutes, and if it doesn't stop scratching that door by then, I'll take a rolling pin and go out and have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with it. It's a little hard. My own house, and the first thing I find when I arrive is somebody else's beastly dog scratching holes in the doors and ruining the expensive paint. Stop it, you brute! The dog's reply was to continue his operations with immense vigor. Eucridge's eyes gleamed behind their glasses. Give me a good large jug, laddie, he said with ominous calm. He took the largest of the jugs from the dresser and strode with it into the scullery, whence came a sound of running water. He returned carrying the jug with both hands, his mien that of a general who sees his way to a masterstroke of strategy. "'Garney, old horse,' he said, "'freeze on to the handle of the door, and when I give the word, fling wide the gates. Then watch that animal get the surprise of a lifetime.' I attached myself to the handle as directed. Eucridge gave the word. We had a momentary vision of an excited dog of the mongrel class framed in the doorway, all eyes and teeth. Then the passage was occupied by a spreading pool, and indignant barks from the distance told that the enemy was thinking the thing over in some safe retreat. "'Settled his hash,' said Eucridge complacently. Nothing like resource, Garney, my boy. Some men would have gone on letting a good door be ruined. And spoiled the dog for a hapeth of water, I said. At this moment Mrs. Eucridge announced that the kettle was boiling. Over a cup of tea, Eucridge became the man of business. I wonder when those fowls are going to arrive. They should have been here today. It's a little hard. Here am I all eagerness and anxiety, waiting to start an up-to-date chicken farm, and no fowls. I can't run a chicken farm without fowls. If they don't come tomorrow, I shall get after those people with a hatchet. There must be no slackness. They must bustle about. After tea I'll show you the garden, and we'll choose a place for a fowl run. Tomorrow we must buckle too. Serious work will begin immediately after breakfast. Suppose, I said, the fowls arrive before we're ready for them. Why, then they must wait. But you can't keep fowls cooped up indefinitely in a crate. Oh, that'll be all right. There's a basement to this house. We'll let them run about there till we're ready for them. 
There's always a way of doing things if you look for it. Organization, my boy, that's the watchword, quiet efficiency. I hope you are going to let the hens hatch some of the eggs, dear, said Mrs. Eukridge. I should love to have some little chickens. Of course, by all means. My idea, said Eukridge, was this. These people will send us fifty fowls of sorts. That means, call it forty-five eggs a day. Let em, well, I'm hanged. There's that dog again. Where's the jug? But this time an unforeseen interruption prevented the maneuver being the success it had been before. I had turned the handle, and was about to pull the door open, while Eukridge, looking like some modern and dilapidated version of the discobulus, stood beside me with his jug poised, when a voice spoke from the window. "'Stand still,' said the voice, "'or I'll corpse you.' I dropped the handle. Eukridge dropped the jug. Mrs. Eukridge dropped her teacup. At the window, with a double-barreled gun in his hands, stood a short, square, red-headed man. The muzzle of his gun, which rested on the sill, was pointed in a straight line at the third button of my waistcoat. Eukridge emitted a roar like that of a hungry lion. "'Beel! You scoundrelly unprincipled demon! What the devil are you doing with that gun? Why are you out? What have you been doing? Why did you shout like that? Look what you've made me do!' He pointed to the floor. The very old pair of tennis shoes which he wore were by this time generously soaked with the spilled water. "'Floor, Mr. Eukridge, sir, is that you?' said the red-headed man, calmly. "'I thought you was burglars.' A short bark from the other side of the kitchen door, followed by a renewal of the scratching, drew Mr. Beale's attention to his faithful hound. "'That's Bob,' he said. "'I don't know what you call the brute,' said Eukridge. "'Come in and tie him up. And mind what you're doing with that gun. After you've finished with the dog, I should like a brief chat with you, laddie, if you can spare the time and have no other engagements.' Mr. Beale, having carefully deposited the gun against the wall and dropped a pair of very limp rabbits on the floor, proceeded to climb in through the window. This operation concluded, he stood to one side while the besieged garrison passed out by the same route. "'You will find me in the garden,' said Eukridge coldly. "'I've one or two little things to say to you.' Mr. Beale grinned affably. He seemed to be a man of equable temperament. The cool air of the garden was grateful after the warmth of the kitchen. It was a pretty garden, or would have been if it had not been so neglected. I seemed to see myself sitting in a deck-chair on the lawn, smoking and looking through the trees at the harbour below. It was a spot, I felt, in which it would be an easy and a pleasant task to shape the plot of my novel. I was glad I had come. About now, outside my lodgings in town, a particularly foul barrel-organ would be settling down to work. "'Oh, there you are, Beale," said Eukridge, as the servitor appeared. "'Now, then, what have you to say?' The hired man looked thoughtful for a moment, then said that it was a fine evening. "'Fine evening!' shouted Eukridge. 
What on earth has that got to do with it? I want to know why you and Mrs. Beale were out when we arrived. The missus went to Axminster, Mr. Euclid, sir. She had no right to go to Axminster. It isn't part of her duty to go gadding about to Axminster. I don't pay her enormous sums to go to Axminster. You knew I was coming this evening. No, sir. What? No, sir. Beale, said Eugridge, with studied calm, the strong man repressing himself, one of us two is a fool. Yes, sir. Let us sift this matter to the bottom. You got my letter? No, sir. My letter saying that I should arrive to-day, you didn't get it? No, sir. Now look here, Beale, this is absurd. I am certain that that letter was posted. I remember placing it in my pocket for that purpose. It is not there now. See? These are all the contents of my— Well, I'm hanged. He stood looking at the envelope which he had produced from his breast pocket. A soft smile played over Mr. Beale's wooden face. He coughed. Beale, said Eugridge, you, er, there seems to have been a mistake. Yes, sir. You are not so much to blame as I thought. No, sir. There was a silence. Anyhow, said Eugridge in inspired tones, I'll go and slay that infernal dog. I'll teach him to tear my door to pieces. Where's your gun, Beale? But better counsels prevailed, and the proceedings closed with a cold but pleasant little dinner, at which the spared mongrel came out unexpectedly strong with ingenious and diverting tricks. End of chapter 4「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org.」Reading by Mark Nelson « Love Among the Chickens » by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 5 Buckling Two Sunshine, streaming into my bedroom through the open window, woke me next day as distant clocks were striking eight. It was a lovely morning, cool and fresh. The grass of the lawn, wet with dew, sparkled in the sun. A thrush, who knew all about early birds and their perquisites, was filling in the time before the arrival of the worm with a song or two, as he sat in the bushes. In the ivy, a colony of sparrows were opening the day with brisk scuffling, on the gravel in front of the house lay the mongrel, Bob, blinking lazily. The gleam of the sea through the trees turned my thoughts to bathing. I dressed quickly and went out. Bob rose to meet me, waving an absurdly long tail. The hatchet was definitely buried now. That little matter of the jug of water was forgotten. A walk of five minutes down the hill brought me, accompanied by Bob, to the sleepy little town. I passed through the narrow street and turned on to the beach, walking in the direction of the combination of pier and breakwater, which loomed up through the faint mist. 
The tide was high, and leaving my clothes to the care of Bob, who treated them as a handy bed, I dived into twelve feet of clear, cold water. As I swam, I compared it with the morning tub of London, and felt that I had done well to come with Eucridge to this pleasant spot. Not that I could rely on unbroken calm during the whole of my visit. I knew nothing of chicken-farming, but I was certain that Eucridge knew less. There would be some strenuous moments before that farm became a profitable commercial speculation. At the thought of Eucridge toiling on a hot afternoon to manage an undisciplined mob of fowls, I laughed, and swallowed a generous mouthful of salt water, and turning, swam back to Bob and my clothes. On my return I found Eucridge, in his shirt-sleeves and minus a collar, assailing a large ham. Mrs. Eucridge, looking younger and more childlike than ever in brown Holland, smiled at me over the teapot. "'Hello, old horse!' bellowed Eucridge. "'Where have you been? Bathing? Hope it's made you feel fit for work, because we've got to buckle to this morning.' "'The fowls have arrived, Mr. Garnet,' said Mrs. Eucridge, opening her eyes till she looked like an astonished kitten. "'Such a lot of them! They're making such a noise!' To support her statement, there floated in through the window a cackling which for volume and variety beat anything I had ever heard. Judging from the noise, it seemed as if England had been drained of fowls and the entire tribe of them dumped into the yard of Eucridge's farm. "'There seems to have been no stint,' I said. "'Quite a goodish few, aren't there?' said Eucridge complacently. "'But that's what we want. No good starting on a small scale.' The more you have, the bigger the profits." "'What sorts have you got, mostly?' I asked, showing a professional interest. "'Oh, all sorts. My theory, laddie, is this. It doesn't matter a bit what kind we get, because they'll all lay. And if we sell settings of eggs, which we will, we'll merely say it's an unfortunate accident if they turn out mixed when hatched. Bless you. People don't mind what breed a fowl is, so long as it's got two legs and a beak. These dealer chaps were so infernally particular. Any dorkings, they said? All right, I said. Bring on your dorkings. Or perhaps you will require a few minorcas. Very well, I said. Unleash the minorcas. They were going on. They'd have gone on for hours. But I stopped them. "'Look here, my dear old college chum,' I said kindly but firmly to the manager Johnny, decent old buck, with the manners of a marquess. "'Look here,' I said, "'life is short, and we're neither of us as young as we used to be. Don't let us waste the golden hours playing guessing games. I want fowls. You sell fowls. So give me some of all sorts. Mix em up, laddie,' I said. "'Mix em up. And he has, by Jove.' You go into the yard and look at them. Beale has turned them out of their crates. There must be one of every breed ever invented. Where are you going to put them? The spot we chose by the paddock. That's the place. Plenty of mud for them to scratch about in, and they can go into the field when they feel like it and pick up worms, or whatever they feed on. We must rig them up some sort of shanty, I suppose, this morning. We'll go and tell him to send up some wire netting and stuff from the town. Then we shall want hen-coops. We shall have to make those. Of course! So we shall. 
Millie, didn't I tell you that old Garnet was the man to think of things? I forgot the coops. We can't buy some, I suppose. On tick, of course. Cheaper to make them. Suppose we get a lot of boxes. Sugar boxes are as good as any. It won't take long to knock up a few coops. Eucridge thumped the table with enthusiasm, upsetting his cup. "'Garney, old horse, you're a marvel. You think of everything. We'll buckle to right away, and get the whole place fixed up the same as Mother makes it. What an infernal noise those birds are making! I suppose they don't feel at home in the yard. Wait till they see the A-1 compact residential mansions we're going to put up for them. Finished breakfast? Then let's go out.' Come along, Millie. The red-headed Beale, discovered leaning in an attitude of thought on the yard gate, and observing the feathered mob below with much interest, was roused from his reflections and dispatched to the town for the wire and sugar-boxes. Eucridge, taking his place at the gate, gazed at the fowls with the affectionate air of a proprietor. "'Well, they have certainly taken you at your word,' I said, as far as variety is concerned. The man with the manners of a marquess seemed to have been at great pains to send a really representative selection of fowls. There were blue ones, black ones, white, gray, yellow, brown, big, little, dorkings, minorcas, cochin chinas, bantams, wyandots. It was an imposing spectacle. The hired man returned towards the end of the morning, preceded by a cart containing the necessary wire and boxes and Eucridge, whose enthusiasm brooked no delay, started immediately the task of fashioning the coops, while I, assisted by Beale, draped the wire netting about the chosen spot next to the paddock. There were little unpleasantnesses. Once a roar of anguish told that Eucridge's hammer had found the wrong billet, and on another occasion my flannel trousers suffered on the wire. But the work proceeded steadily. By the middle of the afternoon, things were in a sufficiently advanced state to suggest to Eucridge the advisability of a halt for refreshments. "'That's the way to do it,' he said, beaming through misty pince-nez over a long glass. "'That is the stuff to administer to him. At this rate we shall have the place in corking condition before bedtime. Quiet efficiency, that's the wheeze. What do you think of those for coops, Beale?' The hired man examined them woodenly. "'I've seen worse, sir.' He continued his examination. "'But not many,' he added. Beale's passion for the truth had made him unpopular in three regiments. "'They aren't so bad,' I said. "'But I'm glad I'm not a fowl.' "'So you ought to be,' said Eucridge. "'Considering the way you've put up that wire—' You'll have them strangling themselves." In spite of earnest labor, the housing arrangements of the fowls were still in an incomplete state at the end of the day. The details of the evening's work are preserved in a letter which I wrote that night to my friend Lickford. Have you ever played a game called Pigs in Clover? We have just finished a merry bout of it, with hens instead of marbles, which has lasted for an hour and a half. We are all dead tired, except the hired man, who seems to be made of India rubber. He has just gone for a stroll on the beach. Wants some exercise, I suppose. Personally, 
I feel as if I should never move again. You have no conception of the difficulty of rounding up fowls and getting them safely to bed. Having no proper place to put them, we were obliged to stow some of them in the cube sugar-boxes and the rest in the basement. It has only just occurred to me that they ought to have had perches to roost on. It didn't strike me before. I shan't mention it to Eukridge, or that indomitable man will start making some, and drag me into it too. After all, a hen can rough it for one night, and if I did a stroke more work I should collapse. My idea was to do the thing on the slow but sure principle. That is to say, take each bird singly and carry it to bed. It would have taken some time, but there would have been no confusion. But you can imagine that that sort of thing would not appeal to Stanley Fansaw. He likes his maneuvers to be on a large, dashing, Napoleonic scale. He said, "'Open the yard gate and let the blighters come out into the open. Then sail in and drive them in mass formation through the back door into the basement.' It was a great idea, but there was one fatal flaw in it. It didn't allow for the hens scattering. We opened the gate, and out they all came like an audience coming out of a theatre. Then we closed in on them to bring off the big drive. For about thirty seconds it looked as if we might do it. Then Bob, the hired man's dog, an animal who likes to be in whatever's going on, rushed out of the house into the middle of them barking. There was a perfect stampede, and heaven only knows where some of those fowls are now. There was one in particular, a large yellow bird, which, I should imagine, is nearing London by this time. The last I saw of it, it was navigating at the rate of knots in that direction, with Bob after it, barking his hardest. The fowl was showing a rare turn of speed and gaining rapidly. Presently Bob came back, panting, having evidently given the thing up. We, in the meantime, were chasing the rest of the birds all over the garden. The affair had now resolved itself into the course of action I had suggested originally, except that instead of collecting them quietly and at our leisure, we had to run miles for each one we captured. After a time, we introduced some sort of system into it. Mrs. Eukridge stood at the door. We chased the hens and brought them in. Then, as we put each through into the basement, she shut the door on it. We also arranged Eukridge's sugar-box coops in a row, and when we caught a fowl we put it in the coop and stuck a board in front of it. By these strenuous means we gathered in about two-thirds of the lot. The rest are all over England. A few may still be in Dorsetshire, but I should not like to bet on it. So you see things are being managed on the up-to-date chicken farm on good, sound Eukridge principles. It is only the beginning. I look with confidence for further interesting events. I believe if Eukridge kept white mice he would manage to get feverish excitement out of it. He is presently lying on the sofa, smoking one of his infernal brand of cigars, drinking whiskey and soda, and complaining with some bitterness because the whiskey isn't as good as some he once tasted in Belfast. From the basement I can hear faintly the murmur of innumerable fowls. End of chapter 5
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 6 Mr. Garnet's Narrative Has to Do with a Reunion The day was Thursday. The date, July the 22nd. We had been chicken farmers for a whole week, and things were beginning to settle down to a certain extent. The coops were finished. They were not masterpieces, and I have seen chickens pause before them in deep thought, as who should say, Now what? But they were coops within the meaning of the act, and we induced hens to become tenants. The hardest work had been the fixing of the wire netting. This was the department of the hired man and myself, Eucridge holding himself proudly aloof. While Beale and I worked ourselves to a fever in the sun, the senior partner of the firm sat on a deck-chair in the shade, offering not unkindly criticism and advice, and from time to time abusing his creditors, who were numerous. For we had hardly been in residence a day before he began to order in a vast supply of necessary and unnecessary things, all on credit. Some he got from the village, others from neighboring towns. Axminster he laid heavily under contribution. He even went as far afield as Dorchester. He had a persuasive way with him, and the tradesmen seemed to treat him like a favorite son. The things began to pour in from all sides—groceries, whiskey, a piano, a gramophone, pictures, also cigars in great profusion. He was not one of those men who want but little here below. As regards the financial side of these transactions, his method was simple and masterly. If a tradesman suggested that a small check on account would not be taken amiss, as one or two sordid fellows did, he became pathetic. "'Confound it, sir!' he would say, with tears in his voice, laying a hand on the man's shoulders in a wounded way. "'It's a trifle hard, when a gentleman comes to settle in your neighborhood, that you should dun him for money before he has got the preliminary expenses about the house off his back.' This sounded well, and suggested the disbursement of huge sums for rent. The fact that the house had been lent him rent-free was kept with some care in the background. Having weakened the man with pathos, he would strike a sterner note. "'A little more of this,' he would go on, "'and I'll close my account. Why, damn, in all my experience I've never heard anything like it.' upon which the man would apologize and go away, forgiven, with a large order for more goods. By these statesmanlike methods he had certainly made the place very comfortable. I suppose we all realized that the things would have to be paid for some day, but the thought did not worry us. "'Pay?' bellowed Eucridge on the only occasion when I ventured to bring up the unpleasant topic. "'Of course we shall pay!' Why not? I don't like to see this faint-hearted spirit in you, old horse. The money isn't coming in yet, I admit, but we must give it time. Soon we shall be turning over hundreds a week—hundreds! 
I'm in touch with all the big places. Whiteleys, Harrods, all the nibs. Here I am, I said to them, with a large chicken farm with all the modern improvements. You want eggs, old horses, I said? I supply them. I will let you have so many hundred eggs a week, I said. What will you give for them? Well, I'll admit their terms did not come up to my expectations altogether, but we must not sneer at small prices at first. When we get a connection, we shall be able to name our terms. It stands to reason, laddie. Have you ever seen a man, woman, or child who wasn't eating an egg, or just going to eat an egg, or just coming away from eating an egg? I tell you, the good old egg is the foundation of daily life. Stop the first man you meet in the street and ask him which he'd sooner lose, his egg or his wife, and see what he says. We're on to a good thing, Garney, my boy. Pass the whiskey. The upshot of it was that the firm's mention supplied us with a quantity of goods, agreeing to receive phantom eggs in exchange. This satisfied Eucridge. He had a faith in the laying power of his hens which would have flattered them if they could have known it. It might also have stimulated their efforts in that direction, which up to date were feeble. It was now, as I have said, Thursday, the 22nd of July. A glorious, sunny morning, of the kind which Providence sends occasionally, simply in order to allow the honest smoker to take his after-breakfast pipe under ideal conditions. These are the pipes to which a man looks back in after years with a feeling of wistful reverence. Pipes smoked in perfect tranquillity, mind and body alike at rest. It is over pipes like these that we dream our dreams and fashion our masterpieces. My pipe was behaving like the ideal pipe, and, as I strolled spaciously about the lawn, my novel was growing nobly. I had neglected my literary work for the past week, owing to the insistent claims of the fowls. I am not one of those men whose minds work in placid independence of the conditions of life. But I was making up for lost time now. With each blue cloud that left my lips and hung in the still air above me, striking scenes and freshets of sparkling dialogue rushed through my brain. Another uninterrupted half-hour, and I have no doubt that I should have completed the framework of a novel which would have placed me in that select band of authors who have no Christian names. Another half-hour, and posterity would have known me as Garnet. But it was not to be. Stop her! Catch her! Garnet, old horse! I had wandered into the paddock at the moment. I looked up. Coming towards me at her best pace was a small hen. I recognized her immediately. It was the disagreeable, sardonic-looking bird which Eucridge, on the strength of an alleged similarity of profile to his wife's nearest relative, had christened Aunt Elizabeth. A Bolshevist hen, always at the bottom of any disturbance in the fowl run, a bird which ate its head off daily at our expense, and bit the hands which fed it by resolutely declining to lay a single egg. Behind this fowl ran Bob, doing, as usual, the thing that he ought not to have done. Bob's wrong-headedness in the matter of our hens was a constant source of inconvenience. From the first, he had seemed to regard the laying-in of our stock 
purely in the nature of a tribute to his sporting tastes. He had a fixed idea that he was a hunting dog, and that, recognizing this, we had very decently provided him with material for the chase. Behind Bob came Newgridge, but a glance was enough to tell me that he was a negligible factor in the pursuit. He was not built for speed. Already the pace had proved too much for him, and he had appointed me his deputy with full powers to act. "'After her, Garney, old horse! Valuable bird! Mustn't be lost!' When not in a catalepsy of literary composition, I am essentially the man of action. I laid aside my novel for future reference, and we passed out of the paddock in the following order. First, Aunt Elizabeth, as fresh as paint, going well. Next, Bob, panting and obviously doubtful of his powers of staying the distance. Lastly, myself, determined, but wishing I were five years younger. After the first field, Bob, like the dilettante and unstable dog he was, gave it up, and sauntered off to scratch at a rabbit-hole with an insufferable air of suggesting that that was what he had come out for all the time. I continued to pound along doggedly. I was grimly resolute. I had caught Aunt Elizabeth's eye as she passed me, and the contempt in it had cut me to the quick. This bird despised me. I am not a violent or a quick-tempered man, but I have my self-respect. I will not be sneered at by hens. All the abstract desire for fame which had filled my mind five minutes before was concentrated now on the task of capturing this supercilious bird. We had been traveling downhill all this time, but at this point we crossed a road and the ground began to rise. I was in that painful condition which occurs when one has lost one's first wind and has not yet got one's second. I was hotter than I had ever been in my life. Whether Aunt Elizabeth, too, was beginning to feel the effects of her run, or whether she did it out of pure effrontery of her warped and unpleasant nature, I do not know. But she now slowed down to walk, and even began to peck in a tentative manner at the grass. Her behavior infuriated me. I felt that I was being treated as a cipher. I vowed that this bird should realize yet, even if, as seemed probable, I burst in the process, that it was no light matter to be pursued by J. Garnet, author of The Maneuvers of Arthur, etc., a man of whose work so capable a judge as the Peebles advertiser had said shows promise. A judicious increase of pace brought me within a yard or two of my quarry. But Aunt Elizabeth, apparently distrait, had the situation well in hand. She darted from me with an amused chuckle and moved off rapidly again up the hill. I followed, but there was that within me that told me I had shot my bolt. The sun blazed down, concentrating its rays on my back to the exclusion of the surrounding scenery. It seemed to follow me about like a limelight. We had reached level ground. Aunt Elizabeth had again slowed to a walk, and I was capable of no better pace. Very gradually I closed in. There was a high boxwood hedge in front of us, and just as I came close enough once more to stake my all on a single grab, 
Aunt Elizabeth, with another of her sardonic chuckles, dived in head foremost and struggled through in the mysterious way in which birds do get through hedges. The sound of her faint spinster-like snigger came to me as I stood panting, and roused me like a bugle. The next moment I, too, had plunged into the hedge. I was in the middle of it, very hot, tired, and dirty, when from the other side I heard the sudden shout of, "'Mark over! Bird to the right!' And the next moment I found myself emerging with a black face and tottering knees on the gravel path of a private garden. Beyond the path was a croquet lawn, and on this lawn I perceived, as through a glass darkly, three figures. The mist cleared from my eyes, and I recognized two of them. One was the middle-aged Irishman who had traveled down with us in the train. The other was his blue-eyed daughter. The third member of the party was a man, a stranger to me. By some miracle of adroitness he had captured Aunt Elizabeth and was holding her in spite of her protests in a workmanlike manner behind the wings. End of chapter 6「Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.